0: Soften our hearts, quicken our understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we began our study in Romans last week, we discovered that the book of Romans has essentially one theme. There's one topic, one motive that the Apostle Paul has in his pursuit to communicate with this Roman church. And that is, as we saw, to explain to them exactly what is the gospel. What is the gospel? In fact, in Paul's introduction, just those first 16 verses there in chapter 1, he uses the word gospel three times. And in each instant, he does it in a way wherein we'll know that that's why he's writing to them. In verse 1 there, the very beginning of the chapter, he tells them, as he introduces himself, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and separated unto the gospel of God. The gospel of God. That's why I'm writing. That's why I'm coming. That's what I'm living for. That's how Paul identifies himself to the Roman church. He says it's the only time he uses that greeting in any of his discourse or any of his letters that he separated unto the gospel. He introduces to them quickly why he's writing. Then in verse 15, he says to them after his introduction, he says, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. He says to them, the purpose of my ministry, the pursuit of my journey there is to preach to you this gospel. To reveal to you the mystery and the majesty, the power of this message, this gospel of God, this wondrous thing that God has ordained and implemented into the lives of men to bless and to redeem them to himself. And then in verse 16, the third time Paul uses this word gospel, our opening verse tonight, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. He tells them, I am not ashamed of this message, this gospel. Why? Three reasons. First of all, because of its power. The power that the gospel has. One time someone came to Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, and asked him how he defended the gospel. How do you defend the gospel, Mr. Spurgeon? And Charles Spurgeon laughed as the person asked that question. He said, Defend the gospel. He said, How do you defend a lion? You don't defend a lion. You simply open the cage and let it out, and it will defend itself. The power of the gospel. I think of the millions of dollars that people spend trying to change their lives. The millions of dollars that people spend on self-help books. Attending self-help programs and seminars, improvement seminars to try to invest and try to improve themselves. They attend programs and support groups to stop doing this or to start doing that. They erect swear jars on their kitchen counters and you know, they make promise cards and, and they try to implement anything that they can to try to change their own lives. And yet, dollar after dollar is spent, promise after promise is made and then broken, and the life never changes. Because none of those things, though they promise great things, have any power at all to change a life. And yet Paul, as he has this ministry, this, this commission to bring and spread forth this gospel, this good news, he knows that he has something that can produce what it promises. That's the second reason he's not ashamed of the gospel is because of its product. That the gospel has the ability to perform that which the promise is. That this gospel can change your life. That it can bring forth salvation. That it can actually save you. And it doesn't cost a thing. You know, I think of Naaman, that Syrian leper, who wanted to be healed and he heard of the prophet Elisha. And Elisha said, it's really simple. Just dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And he said, that's too easy. It can't possibly work. Dip myself in that dirty river? We've got cleaner rivers over here. And yet dipping himself in that river, he found that the message of God works. Freely given to him. This powerful message, this powerful gospel, Paul says it can produce that which it promises. And then, thirdly, he's not ashamed of the gospel because he tells us there that it's without prejudice, that it works for the Jew and it works for the Gentile. See, if you go to a self help seminar, if you call Gold Line, if you make an investment or you put your eggs in a certain basket, yeah, it might work for some. There's always a success story, otherwise things wouldn't sell. But it doesn't work for everyone. And it doesn't work for most. And if it did, well, it would fail. But the gospel without prejudice works every time, everywhere, in every instance, in every person. It's powerful. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm separated unto it, I'm coming there to preach it, and I'm not ashamed of it because of its power, because of its product, because of its lack of prejudice. Because it does what it promises to do. And so Romans is concerned with and centered on the gospel. Now, the first point that Paul makes... The first section of this book of Romans, if you would, this letter, this essay on what exactly is the gospel, Paul gives to us in the first three chapters, very simply, but yet very comprehensively, he gives us the reason why we need it. Why do we need the gospel? Why did God ordain this function and this message in this this way, this means by which we can be saved and changed. Why do we need it? And he spends three chapters, Romans 1, 2, and 3, making this single point. And it can be all summed up in one sentence. And that is found in Romans 3.23. All of these first three chapters are pointing to this one sentence, this one thing, which is this, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everything that we're going to see from this point until we get to the end of Romans chapter three is all centered on making and proving that one point, that all, how many is that? How many? Is there anybody excluded from that? No, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, that is not a hard thing to prove. I mean, I don't think I've ever talked to a single person that has actually tried to tell me that they have never sinned. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people about spiritual things, and yet that's one thing I have never heard from anybody. In fact, usually when I ask people if they sin, they laugh. As if to say, are you kidding? Are you joking? You know, uh, of course. You know, everybody kind of understands and knows this. And see, for you and me, it would probably be enough to just use the one sentence. We would say, well, all have sinned and come of the glory of God. And people would usually just say, yep, amen. Not Paul. See, it's not enough for Paul to just make that declaration, to throw that blanket statement out there and then move on. He's going to prove it. He's going to go through and throughout three chapters, he's going to nail every single person on the planet to the wall and prove that they are sinners and nobody's going to be able to escape. He he takes the time, he devotes the effort to divide the entire world population into three basic categories and then prove like a prosecuting attorney that each of those three sections are guilty before God. In chapter one that we'll look at tonight, he takes first of all the heathen. The first people group that Paul separates out to prove that they are, in fact, sinful, if it needs to be proven, are the heathen. The mortal, the person who is godless, the person who claims to be an atheist, that doesn't believe in God, who believes that they're the byproduct of evolution who live by their own standards and make their own rules for themselves and they just kind of coast through life on that plane of just heathenism, godlessness, and going through. And Paul proves that they are under sin and that they are guilty before God regardless of their atheistic claims. They reject the existence and the authority of God in their lives. And yet Paul proves that even though they do that, they will still be found guilty before God that ignorance will be no excuse before his judgment. The second group that Paul will accuse and then, you know, conclude that they are guilty before God is the moralist, or if you would, the hypocrite, as Paul will will bring out very graciously in his writing. The moralist, which is the deist, they'll acknowledge a higher power. They'll live according to a standard, basically, that they've set for themselves. But they hold the right to obey that standard or not. And Paul basically calls them hypocrites because they don't even live up to the own standard that they place upon themselves. So Paul concludes in the second part of chapters 1 through 3 that the heathen and also the hypocrite are guilty before God, that they can't stand before the judgment. And then number 3, the third group that Paul concludes that they are sinners and guilty before God is the Hebrew. The Jew. The one who believes in God, who believes in the true and the living God. The person who has and holds the Bible and holds to it as true and authoritative. The person who acknowledges God's law as the rule and seeks to live by it, but their problem is that they seek to earn their salvation by living a holy life according to the law of God. And Paul's going to say that no one, can live a holy enough life to justify themselves before God. And so they also, though they believe in God, though they hold to the word, if they're going about trying to maintain and achieve their own righteousness, then they too are guilty before God. And his conclusion will be that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, in each of these cases, he presents their problem, He presents their predicament, and then he presents their peril, that they are guilty, that they are, in fact, headed for judgment, headed for trouble. So tonight, we'll look at the first of these, the the heathen, as we go on. Now, Paul begins this section on universal guilt with a very revealing contrast. In verses 17 and 18, he paints a picture for them of two paths that have two implied destinations. Look at verse 17. He says, For therein, again alluding to the gospel, this powerful message, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That faith in this gospel, this powerful message that we are going to hear and see and handle firsthand." That contained in this, God has revealed righteousness. That there is a way, Paul is saying, that you and I can stand before a holy God and be declared righteous. That the gospel contains the means whereby we can be justified before a holy God. The righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, he says. But, but, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven as well against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So you have the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel on the one hand, but on the other hand, the wrath of God is still present. It still exists for the one who suppresses the truth, who holds to their unrighteous ways, who refuses to submit and give their lives to this God. The wrath of God is held out for them. And that's where Paul's going to take us down. He's going to take us down this path, revealing to us the wrath of a holy God upon a Christ-rejecting, sinful human culture and human nature. Have you ever bought a piece of jewelry? I haven't. (laughs) But I have seen commercials for jewelry. And I have seen ads, you know, in magazines and this type of thing. And one thing that you will always notice when you buy a piece of jewelry or when you go visit a jewelry store or see an ad on TV or in a magazine is that no matter what, every single time a a diamond or a ring or a necklace is always presented with a background of black. The box will be black, the velvet black. The sheet that is displayed there at the bottom of the case will always be black. Why? Because the black darkness of that velvet background only accents and brings out the beauty of the jewel that's being displayed. We've all seen that. We all understand that. And in a sense, that's what Paul is doing here. As he lays the foundation to show us this incredible gem this beautiful jewel of God's gospel, his message, the salvation to be revealed, he first lays down this velvet black background, this dark situation that humankind find themselves in to bring out the beauty of this everlasting gospel all the more. So though as you read these verses and you hear me speak on these things, it seems a little bit heavy, it seems a little bit dark. You say, oh, I'm really glad I came to church tonight after the things that you're going to hear. Please understand where Paul's going with this. That before he can bring forth this beauty, first he has to show to us the necessity. Why is it necessary? Why do we need God to do what he did? Why do we need this gospel? And so Paul is going to bring it out. He's going to show us the wrath of God upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And in this first section, we examine the heathen, the godless, atheistic Gentiles. And they're characterized in these ways. First of all, Paul tells us right there at the verse of, or end of verse 18 that they suppress the truth. That they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The first defining characteristic of the heathen is that they suppress it. As I read that, immediately what came into my mind was a picture of Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. You recall the scene there where Jesus had been praying with his disciples in the garden, and the band of soldiers come, and there's kind of a little bit of a ruckus, and Jesus is carried off to the judgment hall, and there he's beaten, and there he's scourged, and this passion of his begins. And he's brought before Pilate, and he hasn't much to say. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't make any charges against Pilate or against the system. He's fairly silent and Pilate begins questioning Jesus and he says to him are you the king of the Jews are you a king are you a Jew and Jesus just sits there silently and Pilate then trying to provoke Jesus to say something don't you know that I have the power to either let you go or to prosecute don't you realize the the power and the authority behind this and Jesus looks at Pilate and he ignores all of that that he just put out before him And Jesus looks at him and he says these words, he says that everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate, taken back by that word that Jesus gave, he looks at him and he says, what is truth? Cynically, sarcastically, scornfully, he looks at him, he says, what is truth? What is truth? Is there any truth? There's no truth. There's no greater example of what it means to suppress the truth. Than the scene there with Jesus, who is the living truth, standing before Pilate, a vile, wretched sinner. And Pilate saying, what is truth? Truth is standing right in front of you. Truth is looking you right in the face. You will never have a time in your life when you are more put to it, face to face, with truth than you are right now. And yet you still ask the question, what is truth? Listen, you're suppressing it. You're suppressing the truth. You have the greatest opportunity. How many of us have so many times said, Lord, please, I just want to see you. Lord, I need to talk to you face to face. Lord, just show up right here, right now. Pilate had that. Pilate was standing face to face with the physical Jesus. And yet he didn't come to him. He didn't say, well, what do you mean by that? He didn't say, well, you're making the claim that you are truth. Well, tell me this truth. What does it mean? What is the truth? Explain it to me. He just simply says, there is no truth. He stifles. He's trying to get Jesus to talk. And then Jesus talks and he says, quiet, there is no truth. He suppresses the very message that's been put right before him for him to hear. That's a defining characteristic of the heathen. They suppress the truth. It's amazing. People suppress the truth all the time. Notice that it doesn't say that they avoid the truth because you can't avoid the truth. It's right there. It's all over the place. And every one of us here that have given our lives to Christ, we know it. Because I knew it. I knew it. I remember before I came to the Lord, in that couple of years I had when I was just running as hard as I could away from him, I would run and I would say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God. And then I would turn around and literally say, leave me alone. <laughs> testifying against myself that I knew it. I couldn't avoid it. I couldn't get away from it. I was suppressing it. You can't avoid it. It doesn't say that they don't know the truth. Everybody knows, intuitively, innately, internally, everybody knows that there is a God. Everybody knows that they've been created, but it has to be suppressed. And and it's incredible how it is. There are great scientific schemes that have been invented, propagated, and expanded just for the very case of teaching people how to suppress the truth. There are great religious systems that have been erected, monuments religiously that have been erected in people's lives that are designed to suppress the very truth of God. If you crawl up these 418 stairs on your knees and kiss the feet of that statue, then God will bless you really that's what god wants from me god wants me to have bloody knees and humbled lips as i kiss that dirty toe and then he'll bless me after that oh that's a great god i can't wait to serve him god needs my money that's what god wants he's great no listen that's not god that's oh i can't say that you get the idea People standing before God and they're going to say, but I lit candles. Don't you know how many candles I lit for you? Is that what God wants? He wants you to light candles at a dollar a pop. I've spent great religious systems all designed to teach people how to suppress the truth. The thing that's right there standing in front of them all the time. But how do they suppress it and why? It says that they suppress it in unrighteousness. John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Jesus said, This is the condemnation, that men loved darkness rather than light. It isn't an issue of not knowing about the light. It isn't an issue of not understanding or perceiving the truth. It's an issue of loving darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light. Neither comes, lest his deeds should be reproved. Let me ask any of you a question is it ever hard to find light when you wake up in the middle of the night and you need to make your way to the bathroom what do you look for the light you never look for the dark i'm gonna find that dark spot and you just walk towards the darkness the light is the easiest thing to find in a darkened place if there's a tiny little light somewhere that's what you find the light's not hard to find the only way that a person can miss the light is if they love darkness that's the case that paul is making here they suppress the truth no matter what they can. They hate the light, neither do they come to the light lest their deeds should be reproved. The issue is their deeds, what they're doing with their life. So they suppress the truth. It's the defining characteristic of the heathen. Number two, they also ignore the proof. In order to suppress the truth, you've got to ignore the proof. Look at verse 19. It says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Psalm Chapter uh, 19, verse 1, says that the heavens themselves declared the glory of God. The creation testifies to his existence and to his reality. And that they're without excuse because of it. Now, we could camp on these two verses for several weeks. Believe me, I had to really rein in the temptation. Because we could have spent a long time here number one talking about just the intricacies of the human body creation testifying to the fact that there's a creator think about I almost did this and I didn't basically because I ran out of time but I almost took a watch an old I have like a hundred broken watches because I ruined them quickly and 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 I, I almost smashed it with a hammer and put it in a brown paper bag and I was gonna bring it in here and just shake it and just shake it and just ask you if I shook this bag with these broken pieces of watch for a million years, if magically somehow I would open it up a million years later and there would be a perfectly intact functioning watch inside of there. And yet when you consider your eyeballs, You consider the very parts that make up your eye, you know, from all the way back to the nerve endings that transmit the message to your brain, to the cornea and the retina and the pupil and all that's on the outside that you see, and everything in between that makes your eye work better than the most high-tech camera that Canon or Kodak could ever make. And yet if you subtract one fraction of that ingredient, that equation, the eye doesn't work. So let me ask you, how does an eye evolve? Because take away one part and you have nothing. It's not anything. It serves no purpose at all. It's just nothing. It's a piece of matter. So that means it all had to be made at once. And your eye is 20 million times more complex than that watch. You're going to tell me that that just accidentally came together because of natural selection? Listen, the proof is right in front of you the whole time. You're ignoring the proof. Not to mention the ear. Not to mention motor skills. Not to mention thought comprehension and speech and all of that. And yet all of that placed within you perfectly. Placed within man from the time that he was created by God. But we'll just ignore the proof. And we'll listen to Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution and how all this came about by the result of a big bang and some big accident. God says, you are without excuse the very creation is enough for you to know that there is a God enough for you to know that there's a light in the corner of that room and to go look at that light and see what it is. And they will be without excuse because of it. It removes the excuse in all of this. We could talk about the visible aspects of creation itself, the size of the sun. I I can't get into this right now, but talk to me later. We really don't have time, but 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 to just consider, and many of you have and you understand and see these things, that there's no way this is just an accident. They ignore the proof, and then third, they became fools. Verse 21. It says, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. That's the first step to becoming a fool, by the way. When you know God, to not give Him glory as God, to not glorify Him to not magnify Him, to not praise Him as God, and to take your place in humility before Him, as you would any king, any ruler, not, not to mention God. It starts with not giving God glory, and then it moves into unthankfulness. It says, neither were they thankful. I believe that the cure, and I'm not trying to be simplistic or cliche-like, but I believe that the cure for almost every ounce of depression is thankfulness, to give thanks for what you've got. I had one of those days Friday, you ever have one of those days? You know, I work in the city and I've got the traffic patterns kind of licked, so I thought, and I know how to time all the different traffic reports to get a pretty good idea of which way I want to take home and I'm good, man, I can tell you ways to get in and out of the city, you know, you wouldn't believe. And so I finally, I I think I got it wired, you know, and I'm going to go. And let me tell you, every single turn I took, I waited 15 minutes at least. And that's a lot of turns. You know, I took, I got detoured and it took me right up Broadway city. You don't want to do that. You know, it it just took me forever. And, and, you know, and then I got home and, and, and I had a little bit of time because I forgot why. So I thought I'd go get a haircut and you could see that didn't turn out so good either. And I got home and I was mad. I I mean, I I don't get mad very often, you know, but I was like kind of breathing heavy and I could feel like stress, you know, it's just like this stress, you know, this whole thing. And and Georgia could tell you, it just was a bad day, one of the worst. And I got over it, you know, I went through the weekend and I got better, you know, I was cured and healed and repentant and all that stuff, you know, and then I went to work on Monday and this other guy that we've been working with, he's kind of new in the thing, he came to me and he said, hey, you'll never guess what happened to me after work on Friday. He said, I went to the parking garage to go get my car and all my brake fluid was on the ground. And he said, I had to get towed over to a garage where they fixed my car and I didn't get out of there until 8 o'clock Friday night. And immediately the Lord said, hey Nick, what time did you get home? Unthankfulness. The scripture says, in everything, give thanks. Now, I thought, man, I have a case. I have a reason to be mad. I mean, everything I'm trying to do is just frustrated and confusion is wrong. And and, and what did it cause? Depression and anxiety and stress and all of that? Hey, I could have been the guy in the parking garage with my brake fluid on the ground. God is so good to us. He's so gracious. When we turn inward and we become selfish and unthankful, causes depression anxiety we become fools ask my wife i look like a fool i was chastised you know the haircut and all you know they became fools and then they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise they became fools And they change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Fools. That's God's assessment as he looks at these people who profess themselves to be wise, who suppress the truth, who build grand mechanisms and schemes of suppressing truth, ignoring proof, and becoming fools. That's what they are. Well, Paul goes on from there, after giving these identifying characteristics of the heathen, he takes us now in a time machine into kind of the end of the road. What's the end of the road morally for the heathen, for those that ignore God, for those that suppress the truth and become fools? He says that the end result of a godless, Christ-rejecting person, culture, or society will ultimately end in an embracing, accepting, and experimenting with homosexuality. He, he fast forwards and he goes in, look at verse 24, he says, Wherefore God also gave them up unto uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever, Amen. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Just last week, our Congress, the United States Congress, voted to repeal the policy that our nation had previously held concerning homosexuals serving in the military. You remember from the Bill Clinton era that policy that was put in place, don't ask, don't tell, that we'll just keep quiet, it'll be a hush kind of a thing, and just last week our Congress voted to repeal that, that, that now they find that, that it's, it's acceptable, it's, you know, supposed to be that you should be able to serve openly in that, uh, you know, kind of a lifestyle, in that kind of a situation within the military in the United States of America. Now, on the forefront of that debate, whether or not that should be allowed or not, and whether or not it's constitutional or ethical and all the rest, on the forefront of the debate, you hear the issues of equality. You hear about issues of privacy, of whether or not, you know, that's acceptable because of privacy, things that happen when you have that kind of a setting, and you have the issue of bigotry. That, that is it right for us to really discriminate and make these kind of judgments and assessments and tell people how their orientation should be and, and all that kind of thing. But amazingly, that throughout all of the debate, all of the talking heads, all the publicity, all of the editorials, nobody brings up the issue of morality. Is it right or wrong? Aren't we a Judeo-Christian society? I mean, hey, you read the polls and... 80% of the people in this country claim to be Christian. They claim to be people that believe in and put their you know, lifestyle upon the Bible. Well, what does the God of Old Testament Judaism and New Testament Christianity say about this concept, this topic of homosexuality? Well, in the Old Testament, you read in Leviticus and you find that God is deadly serious against it. He says declaratively, definitively, that he's serious about it, that it's wrong, that it's not right. In the New Testament, right here in the book of Romans, chapter 1, God declares that it's the lowest point morally that any culture or society can find themselves at. The Lord unmistakably forbids that kind of a lifestyle, scripturally, morally, ethically. That's God's position. Why? Why? I mean, this is 2010 and, you know, we all know what things are like out there in society and what people are saying and this person's oriented this way and that person the other. So why? Why is this such a big deal with God? Why is God so uptight about this issue of homosexuality? Well, like all sin, whether it's homosexuality or alcoholism or any other issue of immorality that the Bible speaks of, Homosexuality is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Do you understand that? That God doesn't just put up certain parameters and say, well, I'm going to make this rule, this rule, and this rule, and bad will be defined as you going against those things, and that's just the way it is. That's not the way God works. God lovingly, graciously gives to us free will. And as part of that, he gives us warnings and he says, don't put your finger in that electric socket. That electric socket has a purpose and if you put your finger in it, you're going to find that that was not the purpose for which it was created. Don't do it. And he forbids it, not because he's restrictive and staunch, but rather because he's a loving father who wants to protect his people, his creation, from destruction, from something that will harm them homosexuality is forbidden because it damages and destroys what god created it damages physiologically look at verse 24 it says wherefore god also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves god looks at it and he says it's it's unclean it's unnatural it's physiologically damaging Dr. A.E. Wildersmith, a doctor and a theologian, published a study a few years ago in which he enumerated the health risks and hazards associated with a homosexual lifestyle. And he talks extensively about the unnatural breakdown in the normal immune response of a person who engages in that kind of a lifestyle. And then he gets a lot more detailed and he talks about other things that take place in the body and that break down physiologically things that I don't really want to talk about. But it's Dr. A.E. Wilder Smith. You could Google it. But scientifically and practically, it's unhealthy and it's destructive physiologically. And God says, don't do it. It also damages psychologically. There's a psychological aspect of damage that happens in that thing. I was at the gym yesterday, and, you know, for one of those miraculous times, there was nobody on any of the treadmills. And the gym, you know, is kind of prehistoric, so they have one fan, and you get to move it if you're the only one there. You can put it by your treadmill, you know. So the fan was already by the treadmill. You could tell I'm, like, buttering you up, you know. I, I get on this treadmill that's right by the fan, you know, and, and right in front of me on the TV in front of my treadmill is Ellen. So now I got a debate. Okay, do I leave the fan and, you know, leave Ellen? Or do I deal with Ellen so that I get the fan? I'm like, you know what? I could, I could ignore Ellen. I'm, I'm strong enough to ignore Ellen. I don't need to look at Ellen. So I'm running. Nothing, I'm not bashing Ellen. It was what was on Ellen, okay? So I'm looking, and all of a sudden, I realized, reading the subtitles, what Ellen's theme was yesterday. Her guests, her panel were high school girls that were forbidden from going to their prom because they couldn't take their homosexual dates with them. And so she was bringing them up onto this thing and she was interviewing them about what it was like to be in that position where they were discriminated against because of something that they couldn't help. Something that that was just the part of the way they were and the way they were made. And, you know, should you be discriminated against for being human? I mean, how ridiculous is it that you shouldn't be allowed to go and take your date to the prom just because of your thing? But the point is this, is that the premise that she was operating on, the assumption that she was operating under, is that they were actually born that way, that they had no choice in the matter, and that they, they no matter what they could do, that was just what they were. Well, people debate about this. There's debate, there's studies about do homosexual people actually have a different chemical component working within them, making them the way they are? And if they do, were they born that way or is that something that happened to them along the way as they experimented with, as they began, you know, operating within this thing? When did that happen? And so, you know, this person makes this point, and this person makes that point. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that God gave them over. It says because of that giving themselves over to uncleanness, it says that God ratified that decision. And the Bible says that very clearly twice in verse 24, and then again in verse 28. It says God gave them up unto uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts in verse 24 and then in verse 28 it says and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge God gave them over to a reprobate mind and then in verse 27 at the end it says that they received in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat and there is a psychological damage that happens something happens within the makeup of a person that embraces that lifestyle and we've all seen it a man who embraces a homosexual lifestyle will take on feminine characteristics. And likewise, a woman who takes on those that kind of a lifestyle will begin to display masculine characteristics. There's something that changes. There's something that happens inside. There's a psychological damage that takes place when someone embraces that kind of a lifestyle. And God says, I would keep you from that. Third of all, it damages societally. In Gibbon's work, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, he credits Rome's final destruction, at least partially, to the fact that 14 of the last 15 emperors of the Roman Empire were practicing open homosexuals. And that part of that, according to Gibbons, is that they appointed gay generals and commanders in their thing, and that this was a major reason that the forces no longer had the will to fight, and it broke down the army, and the Visigoth storms in, and Rome fell. And he makes this case that uh, that their society, this strongest Roman empire, this thing that never could be penetrated or break down, was broken down when homosexuality became the lifestyle and the accepted practice of the day in that place. Biblical scholarship suggests also that the Canaanites were embracers of this lifestyle. In Chronicles, they're called sodomites. And God says that they they experienced a similar collapse because of that. It's societally unhealthy and unsustainable. God says it will break down any of those things. But those three reasons, you have physiologically, you have psychologically, you have societally, and those three are important. But the most important reason why I believe that God forbids it is because it also desecrates God's image theologically. When God created Adam and he made him in his image, he put him in the garden, and Adam was given an incredible capacity and an even greater responsibility. He was made in God's image. He was put over the creation. And the first time that God said it is not good is when he saw that Adam was alone. And so God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and God went in while Adam was asleep and he took something out of Adam. Yeah, it was a rib. There was a physical thing that was removed from him. But it was more than that. God took something from the man And he made the woman, and then he put them together, and he called their name Adam. There was something that was taken out of Adam that day when God went in and did that surgery on him. There was a certain sensitivity. There was a certain tenderness. A certain appreciation for finer things. A delicate, a mothering quality that was taken from this perfect man that God made and then was given to the woman. Hey, woman, look at your man. He's not all there. He's missing something. Man, look at the woman. No. But listen, God put them together And he called their name Adam, and he says that this is to be the representation of who I am. This is what's created in my image. The male and the female, married, marriage, physical, the two shall become one. Fast forward. 1 Corinthians 14.45 calls Jesus Christ the last Adam. Jesus is called the last Adam. He was the perfect representation, not of something created in the image of God, but of God himself. And when we look at Jesus, we understand that he was a carpenter. And that as a carpenter, he would go into the woods and he would cut down a tree and then he would haul it out himself and then he would fashion and form it into a table with calloused hands and bulging biceps. But yet at the same time we read that he would sit with little children and he would say, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. And he could tenderly take time and appreciate the time taken with the child. In Luke chapter 4, when the people became angry with him and they wanted to kill him, it says that Jesus passed through the midst of them and no one dared lay a hand on him. Who knows what it was that that they feared what they saw, but he fearlessly walked right through them like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, you kind of picture in that thing. You know, as he goes through there. But yet the scripture tells us also at the same time that a bruised reed, he wouldn't break. That if he was walking and he saw a plant that would hunch over, he wouldn't just walk by and ignore it, but he would take the time to prop it up and fix it. What? This carpenter, this rugged man, would also take the time to heal a broken plant? What's that about? We read about how Jesus would tear through the temple with You know, eyes aflame and he would turn over the tables of the money changers and say that you have made my father's house a den of thieves but yet John chapter 2 verse 16 says that when he got to the doves he carefully let them out and made sure that none of them were harmed he took the time to make sure that those animals were okay It, it, it almost doesn't fit you say well are you angry or not you know what what's the story what's going on here He's walking on the water and Peter begins to sink and he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down and with one arm, he pulls Peter up out of the sea and just holds him there and lifts him up and sets him back in his place. This man's man. And yet not too far from then, he would sit on a donkey and he would weep as he would look over Jerusalem and he would say, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not? What did he just say? His disciples must have thought. (laughs) Mother hen gathered? Jesus, you're killing the image here. No. You see, he was the perfect man. He was what God made. He he was the perfect expression of masculinity, might, strength, ruggedness, and also sensitivity, beauty, appreciation. It was all there. It was filled. The fullness of all that we are was placed in Him. And when a man and a woman come together in marriage, it is an expression, a testimony of the person in the image of God. It's putting back together what God wants. By the way, woman, do you know that your man cannot meet the need that you have? Man, do you know that God didn't give you that woman to be your satisfaction and your delight because she can't? She doesn't have everything that you need. There's only one that does. Georgia will put a bowl of potpourri on the back of the toilet, you know, and I'll come out and she'll be like, did you see it? Did you see it? Let me try again. You know, I'll go in there, look around. No. Did you get a haircut? You know. And and what is it? You know, what is it? Did you you see? And oh, you didn't you didn't see the potpourri. And she's thrilled about the potpourri that she's got. She put on the back. Sorry, honey. It smells so good. We'll walk through Home Depot. Ah. That's the smell of sawdust right there. Tools, Makita, Dewalt, Bosch, you know, yes, this is grand and glorious. And there she is going, Can we go yet? You know. I want to go to Linens and things. <laughs> and she could look at me and she could say, you know, you're just not getting it. You're not understanding. You're not sensitive to my needs. You know what? I'm not. I could look at her and I could say, don't you like sports? Can't we just watch football together? You know, why is it that you're crocheting during the game and, you know, you want to talk? And, and, and you know, how, how is it that this is happening? I'm deceived, Lord! No, listen, listen. Jesus will walk the aisles of Home Depot with you endlessly, appreciating fully what the finest of craftsmen have to offer as far as tools and lumber and all the rest. And wife, Jesus, will take you by the hand. He'll lead you graciously, tenderly. He notices the potpourri. He's the one that can fill. He's the one that can satisfy. He's the one that can meet your needs. That's why Ecclesiastes 4 says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Because if you try to have a relationship apart from Jesus Christ, you're going to rely too heavily on that other person to try to fill you. And it doesn't work. They can't. You're putting a strain and a stress on them that they cannot bear. But Jesus will walk with you. See, when a person embraces a homosexual lifestyle, not only do they damage themselves physically, psychologically, societally, they ruin the picture theologically, and they can never have the kind of relationship that God wants to enter into and bless. And so God looks at his creation lovingly, and he says, it's forbidden. It will destroy you. It's not going to work. Well, we're out of time. But the end of the line morally for the heathen is embracing, accepting, and experimenting with homosexuality. And then you can read on and fill in the rest in verses 29 through 32 and read about the reckless abandonment behaviorally. What will happen in the heart of a people that refuse to accept God in their lives? Read the end of their thing. I'll make one comment and we'll close, and the worship team can come. But after Paul gives this great list in verses 29 through 32, and I won't read it again, at the very end in verse 32 he says, the people that know the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but they have pleasure in In them that do them. From the first time I ever read this verse, something came into my mind that has never left when I read that. That they not only do the same thing, but they have pleasure in them that do them. Can I ask you to remember this verse next time you go to Tinseltown, next time you go to Blockbuster, next time you log on to Netflix to make your next month's selections? That God Looks at the things that we take pleasure in, and he sees it as us participating in them as well. I was convicted by that from the first time I ever read it, even to this day. I never forget that. I'm very careful about what I set before my eyes, what I will allow to entertain me, because God says that it has an effect on you greater than what you will know. I want to leave you with a challenge and then we'll be done. And I'm not going to meddle. I'm just going to challenge you, and you can take it or leave it as you would like. But I can tell you this, that if you would make a decision to fast from movies for one month, something will happen in your life. Something will change within you. I promise you, because I've proven this for myself. I've seen it happen. You'll notice after just a short period of time just fasting from movies that you'll actually find that there's a craving within you to watch them. You'll be like, you know, I really want to watch a movie. And if you ignore that craving, it'll get a little stronger. It'll get a little louder. And to me, that's an indication, hey, there's a void I'm trying to fill. There's something there that God wants to fill. He wants to have, and I'm filling it with something else. You'll discover that, I promise you, if you'll do it. You'll also find more productive time you're more productive in the important areas but there, there's more I got a lot to say I'm way out of time <laughs> the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. there is nothing nothing listen Saints there is nothing that is too strong for God to break. there is no habit there is no lifestyle there is no grip there's no bondage there's no addiction there's no attraction there's no affection there is nothing that can be going on in your life right now, that the power of God is not strong enough to break completely through and through. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, lists to them some of the sins that they were caught up in. And he uses this word, he says, such were some of you, but now you are washed. Now you are cleansed. Nothing is too hard for God to break. What's the thing in your life right now that's got you bound? What's the stronghold, the thing that's keeping you back from knowing God in a fuller and richer and deeper way? What aspect of heathen culture has grabbed a hold of your affection and vies for your attention that attracts itself to you? Listen, God can break it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. It doesn't discriminate. God doesn't discriminate. Maybe as we close in this song, as we sing this song together, maybe you sense the spirit perhaps prompting you to just stand, to just acknowledge before the Lord that Lord, there's something in my life that I've set in a higher place than you. Lord, my temper, it's just out of control and I, I need your help, Lord. I need you to break this thing. Maybe you struggle with homosexual tendencies or just heterosexual perversion in some way. God can break it. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus was teaching... And it says that the Pharisees, the doctors of the law, the scribes, that they were all gathered to hear Jesus teach. And it says that the power of the Lord was present to heal. The power of the Lord is present here tonight. That's why he's gathered us here. Not so that we can just hear a long study and have our intellectual muscles stimulated, but because his power is here. The power of this gospel, the power of this salvation is present here. God wants to reach into your life and transform it he wants to renew your mind by the power of his spirit he wants to work in your life I'm going to exit to the side the musicians are going to sing and as the song begins maybe you feel led to stand and say Lord help me Lord break this power break this bondage in my life help me live completely for you fill this void Lord take away this affection this attraction Lord, this desire, this addiction, break it, Lord. In Jesus' name.